Again, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. This is the third part in a series we're calling The Pursuit of God. And when we went through the first one, we looked at um, Psalms 42, verses 1 and 2. As the deer panteth for the water brook, so my soul panteth after God. And we talked about the pursuit of God. Last week we went in Philippians chapter 3, and we looked at the object of our pursuit in verse 7, as the Apostle Paul begins to lay it out. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted lost for the sake of Christ. It becomes very obvious that the object of Paul's pursuit was indeed the Lord Jesus Christ. And today we're going to continue in the object of our pursuit of God, looking at verses 8 through 10. And so it becomes very clear, in view of knowing Christ, today we're going to continue to look at that object, that object found in Philippians 3. And as I stated out, as I started uh, when we went down this path, one of the things I did say that I fundamentally believe that the number one issue, the most critical issue in the church of Jesus Christ today is that people who profess the name of Jesus Christ come to that place where they indeed know God. What we're going to be talking about is knowing God, not knowing about God. There are two profound differences. One is data. One is intellectual. Many people will apprehend tons of intellectual, theological knowledge about God. That's good. But it's only good if it's apprehended by faith. And if it's apprehended by faith, then what we're looking about is coming in and knowing the person of God. Coming into the presence of God. Experiencing the presence of God. There's a big difference. I don't know if you ever met anybody who knew a celebrity or someone famous, right? You may have heard about that person. You may have known about that person by what you hear in the news or in the media. But then when you meet the person who has met the famous person, there's a whole different scheme, isn't there? There's a whole different reality. You start understanding the nuances of that person. You begin to to understand the uniquenesses of that person. And there's a profound difference between knowing about and knowing that person. If you ever have the opportunity to meet the person, you realize, oh boy, they weren't all of this. You know, they're kind of just like I am Um, because of my son's short career in baseball. A lot of major leaguers that my son played with and a lot of major leaguers that my son knows and We've had opportunity to meet one, and, you know, we're able to meet him, and and he's a major league all-star, and, you know, he's currently playing today, but, you know, we had met him when he was playing with my son in college, and then we met him when we went out to see him, and, you know, to pull us in and to come alongside and to see it, you begin to see that the aura, the mysticism is not exactly what it is. Well, many people, many, 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 many people know about Christ. Many people in the church know about Christ. But it's time that the men and women of God come to the place where we know Christ. And better yet, we are known by Christ. And that's what we're going to be taking a look at today. 
What we're going to see in today's text, Philippians 3, verses 8 through 10, we'll be looking at the Apostle Paul, his pursuit of God, and the object of that pursuit. We all need to have that object. We will read of the Apostle's willingness to pay the cost for Christ. We will read Paul's anticipation of the rewards of such a pursuit. We will see the reward of such a pursuit. And that best could be summed up in Paul that I would know him. And we're going to look at that. So it's my prayer this morning, my earnest prayer from, the, from my gut. Oh Lord, that, that, that may be our reward, that we would know Christ. And we may come to that place where we can say that we know you and are known by you. So let's open the Word of God today to Philippians chapter 3. I'll read verses 8 through 10 for context. So Paul says this, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, in order to look at this, there are several key words in verse 8. If you're following along with me, and if you have your Bible, and you have a pencil, or you have the prayer bulletin, and you want to write in the prayer bulletin, I want you to get these key words, because these key words are essential in determining what Paul is saying about. And I'm going to tell you what they are. First of all, the first one is loss. The second one is surpassing value. The third one is no. And the fourth one is rubbish. And again, I'm reading from the New American Standard. All these words speak to the heart of Paul regarding his pursuit of God and intentionally focusing his energy his efforts, his theology, and his relationship with God. It is very clear that his pursuit is the knowledge of Christ. Now I want to call out some of these definitions. That word loss, it's a, it's a merchant type of term. It means of no profit. It's a bad deal. Forfeiture of a bad deal. That's what that word loss says. So look at what Paul is saying that more than that, what is the that? Well, verse 7 tells us whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. What were the things that were counted gained to him? Well, we got to go back to verses 5 and 6. Circumcised the eighth day, the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law found to be blameless. I shared with you last week, Paul was an educated man. Paul studied under the finest theological teacher that there was in Israel. Paul spoke multiple languages. Paul had Roman citizenship. Paul was revered, esteemed. Paul was one in whom people looked to and said, now there goes a good religious man. Paul was a Pharisee. It took a lot to become a Pharisee. You know, Pharisees memorized the first five books of the Bible, forward and backwards. 
They were also guardians of the written law, but they were guardians of an oral law that they believed that Moses had passed on to Israel. They were particular. They could best be defined as the conservatives in Israel. The Sadducees, see, they didn't believe in angels, demons. They didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees would be considered today religious liberals. So notice the sect that Paul came from. He wasn't a Sadducee, but he was a Pharisee. Meticulous. Kept the law. Look what he says there in verse seven, uh, verse 6. As to righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. How zealous was I for the law of God? I persecuted the church because it emerged and it wasn't consistent with the Jewish way. Paul, since the time he was a child, has set his affections on the integrity and the purity of the Jewish faith. But what happened to Paul? Praise God he had an encounter on the road to Damascus, did he not? And praise God that the Lord Jesus revealed himself to him. Praise God it literally knocked him off his horse. And Paul's eyes were open to the truth. And so when we get to verse 7, when he says, whatever things were gained to me, Whatever were those things that I had accumulated, the reputation, the education, the status in the society, whatever were those things, I count them as loss, as a bad deal, as forfeiting something that is no longer profitable. Paul could have rightly He could have rightly said, well, I'll go forward in Christ. I'll maintain my status as a Pharisee. I'll maintain my my education. I'll retain my reputation. I'll just add Christ to it. And people will surely respect me. I could zoom into power in the church, right? Because I have the pedigree. I have the education. I have the theology. I have the training. But I'll take Christ with me. But what was Paul's heart? You see, Paul was pursuing God. Paul was hungering and thirsting after God. He was desirous for the things of God. He wanted to push into God. And if it meant that I lose everything, then so be it. That's how earnest, that's how desirous is his pursuit for God. And that's what he says in verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, the thing that we have to ask ourselves repeatedly, repeatedly, where are the areas of our life where we have laid hold? Where are the areas of life that we are clinging to? Where are the areas of our life that we are white-knuckled and unwilling to let go of? To say, God, you can have anything you want, but you can't have this. If you have a portion of that within your life, you're not going to know God. I shared with you last, word, uh, last week the words of Christ. He who seeks to save his life shall what? He's going to lose it. He who loses his life for my sake and for the kingdom shall what? Shall find it. 
Now, was, was, was the Lord Jesus Christ just using hyperbole? Was the Lord Jesus Christ just giving a nice expression? You know, get, get the idea. No. He calls us to die to self. He calls us to yield our life. We must come to Christ completely and freely and say, Lord, you can have it all. By the way, including your very life. Take a look at verse 8. Paul continues. More than that, more than what I just mentioned to you, more than my pedigree, more than my reputation, more than my theology, more than my status, within the synagogue, more than all these, other diff, uh, all these things that I've discussed with you, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord. I want to pause right there. This, this first portion of verse 8 is power-packed. More than all the things that I had mentioned to you. More than the loss of all of that. For me to know Christ means I count everything else as loss. Now, what does the Scripture mean when it says all things? That's the key. I'm going to share with you something very revelatory, something very profound. What it literally means is all things. That's what it means. It means that we are not to cling, we are not to lay hold to, we are not to apprehend anything that is more prevalent, more preeminent, more dominating in our life than Christ. Well, let's pause here because it's, it's easier said than done, isn't it? Especially as Americans. As Americans, we have a very comfortable lifestyle. The poorest among us would be the richest among many in a large portion of the world. We have been blessed with material wealth. We have been blessed with overabundance. We have been blessed with diversity of knowledge. We have been blessed with educations. The blessings that have befallen this country are tremendous, to say the least. We've also been given what is called the American dream. And what started out as something that was fairly noble, in other words, work, and you'll see the reward of your work, has now become materialism, consumerism, and covetedness. From the moment you wake up, the world blares at you, whether you are on TV, whether you look at your social media. It tells you day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, all the things that you are lacking and you must have to make your life complete. And to a large extent, we buy into that. 
So there are certain elements that when people come to Christ, they say, well, you know, I want just enough Christ to be saved, but Lord, don't encroach on this other area of my life. Don't expect me to give that up. I'm not going to give that up, Lord. I want Christ plus. I want Christ plus my comfort. I want Christ plus my home. I want Christ plus my house. I want Christ plus augment my life, Christ. Be the Savior of my life. But listen, don't encroach on my comfort. Don't encroach on my materialism. Don't encroach on those areas that I love. In chapter 2 of Philippians, turn over there to chapter 2. The Apostle Paul had already told the church at Philippi this very important truth about Christ. Beginning in verse 5, the Apostle Paul says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearances of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." It's a very famous passage of Scripture known as the kenosis of of how Christ emptied himself. But we're not going to touch on that aspect of it as much as we're going to touch on this aspect. What is the attitude that Paul is calling for the Philippians? That if Christ thought it not, if he did not regard his equality with God as a thing to be retained, as a thing to be held onto, he emptied himself of that divine prerogative. He emptied himself. And not only did he empty himself, but he took God incarnate, beautiful, beautiful deity, took the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross, a disgraceful, a disparaging, a wicked, heinous death, to hang naked as a common criminal, accused, beaten, smitten, stricken by man, the creator beaten by his creation. And that was the attitude of Christ. And the encouragement of Paul in chapter 2 is, have that attitude in yourselves. Don't think of yourselves of any repute. Don't think of yourselves of any worth. If Christ could do this, then shouldn't we? Now go back to chapter 3. There's an amazing parallel between these two texts. Paul speaks in chapter 2 of this is what Christ did. This was the emptying that Christ did. Now in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, Paul says, because of Christ's example, I do likewise. Notice what he says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted lost for the sake of Christ. Well, 
Christ counted the equality with God, his position with God, as nothing to be retained, to be held to. Paul in verse 7 says, I do the same thing. All those things that were counted to me as gain, I'm going to let them as loss. Verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost. Why? In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that surpassing value means the superior worth. Here is the superior worth. What needs to be proclaimed to the church of Jesus Christ this day is this. Christ is of superior worth. There is nothing better. There is nothing greater. There is nothing that you could hold on to, nothing that you can possess that would be of greater worth than the knowledge and the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ with an urgency so that all would know, all would know the superior worth. Listen, you are in church today for one reason and one reason only. My job is to articulate to you the superior worth of Christ, that the Spirit of God would speak to your hearts and that you would come to this place where you would empty yourself of everything that we hold on to so that we would gain Christ. Paul makes this wonderful, wonderful comparison. I'll empty myself. I'll get rid of everything. I want to know Christ, as the deer panteth for the water brook, Psalm 42, so my soul pants after thee, O God. Oh, my soul thirsts for God. Psalm 63, my soul thirsts for thee, O Lord, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are the ones that are going to be satisfied. A terrible thing has happened in the church where we have tried to substitute programs. We have tried to substitute things. We have tried to reach the individual. And so we preach to the individual, but what we're preaching to them is not the superior value of Christ. And what needs to be preached today is the superior value of Christ. Listen, we're not offering you something that will make your life partially better. What we offer is the living God who has been broken and sacrificed for you you who can save you from your sins who could deliver you from the domain of darkness this is Christ who emptied himself and thought it nothing nothing but to give his life a ransom for the many so Paul's view of that is that that I want to know Christ and as a result He says in verse 8, the second part, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He's he's let them go. He let his status go. He let his wealth go. It was rumored that, well, history would record that Paul prior to Christ was a very wealthy man. He let it go. He had no home. He traveled. He preached the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Paul makes it clear. He goes, I myself have suffered the loss of all things. And here's the amazing thing. He doesn't look at it 
As I myself have suffered the lost thing, what a martyr I am. Aren't I so great? Aren't I so superior? No. He suffered the loss of all things. He goes, boy, I wish I could get that back. But unfortunately, I became a Christian and Christ cost me everything. No. He suffered the loss of all things. And look what he says. And I count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain. Christ. We have proclaimed such an easy gospel in this nation. We have furthered a doctrine called easy belief. Hey, just make, you raise your hand. I, I see your eyes. That means you must be saved. We have made it as easy as anything for somebody to, to, to proclaim and confess the name of Christ. We've taken repentance out. You rarely hear preachers call men and women to repent, to turn from their sins and trust God. We've taken repentance out. We've reduced it to a few little, nice little bullet points. You believe this? You believe that? You believe that? Oh, you're in. Paul said, it cost me everything to follow this Christ. And Paul says, and I have no regret. You can have this world. Take the world. Take the riches. Take the prestige. Take everything. Take the theology. Take it all. But you cannot take Christ from me. And so Paul says this, I count it as rubbish. Now here's a word. That word literally means scraps. It actually has, depending on its usage, can refer to scraps, discarded scraps that you would throw to wild dogs. You got to remember, right, during this time of first century Palestine, all over the first century world, dogs roamed the streets and they ate garbage and they did everything. So the rubbish that he refers to can have an application of, you know, a wild dog, here, here, just take that. But there's another meaning, a nastier meaning. It means dung. It's a guttural meaning. It's not a nice word for dung. Notice the strong language with which Paul speaks here. He says, not only have I suffered it, but about that stuff that I let go, I consider it garbage. I consider it excrement. I consider it waste. It has no value to me. The only thing that has value to me is Christ. And the question we have to ask ourselves, is that our heart for Christ? Do we have a heart that says, Lord, none of these things mean anything to me? Do we have a heart that says, Lord, I'm willing to let it all go? Or is our heart instead, Lord, I want you, but I want this life. I want you, but I want this world. For many who profess the name of Jesus Christ, they want both. Now listen, don't misinterpret me. Don't add words to my mouth. Don't go home and say, hey, Pastor Mark, ask us to burn all our possessions because I'm not saying that. What I am saying is this. Christ must be that superior value for you.
Christ must be that superior value for me. As we look at our things, as we look at our world, nothing, nothing, nothing should surpass the worth of Christ. And not only merely the worth of Christ, because we know this, He is indeed worthy, is He not? So whether we say so or not doesn't change the worth of Christ. But what it does mean is that there should be nothing that we should be holding on to in this life that is superior to Christ. My pastor in New York used to say this all the time. He goes, I've never seen a funeral procession yet with a hearse that's connected to a U-Haul. They're not bringing the stuff like the Egyptians did, right? When they used to bury the pharaohs. They used to load up those pyramids and load up the tomb with all the wealth and all the things that they would enjoy in the afterlife. For the believer, the only thing we have to take to the grave is the body, but the soul is boom! In the presence of God. Absent in the body, present in the Lord. I'm going to tell you something. I get jealous when believers die. Several weeks ago, we lost our sister, Nancy Small. When I got the news from Dawn, her daughter-in-law, I said, I'm jealous. When my mom and my dad went home to be with the Lord, I said, I'm jealous. They get to be with Jesus. I'm stuck over here for the time being. The Apostle Paul looks and he goes, listen, all these possessions, all this stuff is junk. Junk. And notice what he says in verse 9. And that I may be found in Him. Oh, I love that statement. By the way, whenever you read the New Testament, that is a Pauline statement. In Him. In Christ. Our life is hidden in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. Our salvation is in Christ. And he says that I may be found in Him. To be found in Christ is to be found in the righteousness of of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. The righteousness of God. To be found in Christ is to be found in the righteousness of God. And let me share something. That righteousness does not come from observing the law. It does not come from being, quote, a good person. It does not come from doing good deeds. It came freely and abundantly to the believer because the sufficient work of atonement by our Lord Jesus Christ. But the term goes well beyond that. When we are found in Christ... It is because we have died to the things of the world. Take a look at Romans 6, 
verses 5 through 7, which I think are some of the most important verses in Scripture. Romans 6. For if we become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was what? Crucified with Him. We died with Christ. That our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For He who has died is freed from sin. Now, if you're into Tuesday night verse-by-verse Romans, we covered that. I did extensive uh, explanation through that. But the key is found in verse 6, that our old self was crucified with Him. If we have been crucified with Him, we have been raised in that newness of life. Listen to the words of Jesus, Matthew 16, 25. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. And then Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 to 3. And I love this one. I love this verse. This is Paul again. Set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is, what is it? It is hidden with Christ. In God. That it would be said about every believer that our life is hidden in Christ, that every believer that we are in Christ, that the righteousness of Christ is so pervasive in our life that it exudes from every pore, every opening of our being. A.W. Tozer makes this statement. The average person unable to understand this passion for intimacy with God fills his life with things, hoping to somehow satisfy his inward longing. And he chases that which is exterior, hoping to satisfy that inner thirst, but to no avail. What is Tozer saying? When we pursue the world, when we pursue the things of the world, in essence, it is because we're desiring more of God, but instead we misalign this thought. So we pursue things, thinking that things are going to satisfy, thinking that more vacations and a bigger house and a better car and nicer clothing and everything else is going to satisfy that deep longing inside of us. If we are believers, it's never going to be satisfied until we are filled with the presence of God and we die to the things of this world the supreme worth of Christ should exude from every portion of our body God the Father Christ the Son the Holy Spirit would be so preeminent in us that they would testify through us That when we testify to the glory of God, you know what it does? It comes forth with anointing. It comes forth with power. It comes forth in might. People hear your words and are moved and stirred and convicted. And let me give you a heads up. Sometimes when they're stirred and moved and convicted, they don't all come out going, oh, praise God. Sometimes they come out swinging. Sometimes it moves them and makes them a little bit nasty because the Word of God convicts. It's that two-edged sword. 
when we determine to pursue the presence of God, when we make Christ the object of our pursuit, we are considering all things as loss. We are pursuing what Paul calls that surpassing value, that superior worth of Christ. Our lives will be hidden in Christ and God's presence and God's glory will testify in us and through us. And now the silver bullet question is, how do we pursue this? So pastor, what are you talking about? When are you going to get to the part that five easy steps to pursue God? And here it is. We pursue Him through prayer, through contemplation, through being alone with God, through the reading, meditation of the very Word of God, of waiting upon God, of going through trials with God, and beholding the hand of God as He moves and acts in our life. Here's the question that I often ask. How can this not be worth it? Ask yourself today, what is it that the world has to offer that is far greater, far uh, superior, far more of greater value? Ask yourself, what are you doing today that you are not pursuing God, that you you don't have an object of Christ as your pursuit? What could be more important? Where do we waste our time? Charles Spurgeon says this, We must remember that the goal of prayer is the ear of God. Unless that is gained, the prayer has utterly failed. The uttering of it may have kindled devotional feelings in our minds. The hearing of it may have comforted and strengthened the hearts of those whom we have prayed for. But if the prayer has not gained the heart of God, it has failed in its essential purpose. Christian brother, sister, That's it. We want to come into the knowledge of God. We want to come and be known by God. That God would know us. And that drives us to verse 10. Verse 8, he says, it's worth the loss of everything. I count it as rubbish. Verse 9, he says that in my pursuit I may be found in him, not through a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness is of God. And verse 10, he says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Here come four key words I want you to circle. One, No, K-N-O-W. Two, power. Three, fellowship. Four, conformed. In this verse, we clearly, without mistake, clearly see the object of Paul's pursuit. The very thing, the very object of Paul's life and the object of his pursuit is that I may know him. 
Now you who have part of Calvary probably know this, but it's worth repeating. The word know comes from the Greek word gnoskos. It speaks not of intellectual knowledge or data or an accumulation of facts. It's just a fact. It does not. That word know, K-N-O-W in the Greek, means experiential first-hand knowledge. Mary used that word when the, uh, when the angel came to her and said, hey, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And Mary said, how can this be since I know not a man? She wasn't saying she didn't know another male. She was saying that she had not known a man intimately. So this first keyword here, no, I want you to do this. I want you to remember this. This means firsthand experiential knowledge of God. It is not the accumulation of facts. And I say this not with much pride or joy. I say this with a broken heart that many, many, many people in hell on that great day will have great knowledge of God. But they never knew God. Nor were they known by God. So Paul's point here in verse 10, that I may know Him, that I may know Him experientially, that I may have that first-hand knowledge of the Savior, I may have that first-hand knowledge of Christ, and that is the singular most important thing in the church today for people who profess the name of Christ, that we may know Him experientially, that we may know Him first-hand knowledge that we know the Lord who comes to us and ministers to us in prayer, that we know the Lord who, who surrounds us with grace and mercy, that we know the Lord, that he is not this magic genie we just rub and we ask him for our wishes, that he's not this orbitable God that says, stays up in the heavens and then we dial up a, a 911 and he comes zooming down, fixes the problem, and then he goes zooming back up, but that we, weigh, me, we may know Christ intimately, with first-hand knowledge. Clearly the object of Paul's pursuit, and I submit to you, clearly the object of our pursuit. Notice what he says, that I may know him. And he says something else here, and the power of his resurrection like in Romans 1.16. Again, this word power is the word dunamis. It means the explosive force. The explosive force of the gospel. The power of the resurrection was explosive. It rolled a stone away. It was explosive. It raised him from the dead. It was explosive, so explosive that death could no longer contain him. Paul says that I may know him in the, that power. Listen, that is one of the things missing in the church today. Where's the power? Where's the authority? Many years ago, I preached the message. It was the first time I preached the message in a church that I was in. The church was kind of lackadaisical. I don't know why, but I prayed and the Lord said, 
you know, I want you to preach. Whatever happened to power preaching? And I said, whatever happened to the preaching that moved people? I remember when I was a kid, you sit in church, somebody go up there and preach. You could have been the most hardened sinner like I was, but you know what? You were squirming in your seat. And people were moved, people wept, people cried, and they repented, and they what happened to that? All the preaching today is user-friendly. And we tell people nice words, and we tell five easy tips to be a good manager. Oh, how to be successful in business. Oh, Proverbs says this over here. We tell them everything except the truth. And people are dying in pews of churches that profess the name of Jesus Christ. They're dying there. They're listening to dead men preaching dead words to dead people. Those things ought not to be. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We have the power of God. The word of God should go forth with authority and power and might and should move men and women. Listen, you got to move the Christian. Christians need to feel the power of conviction and be moved by the Holy Ghost and move closer and closer to Christ. Everybody wants a one and done salvation today. That's the problem. Lord, tell me I'm not going to hell, but don't you dare encroach upon my life. Don't ask me to die to self. Don't ask me what I need to do. That's what everybody wants. I just don't want to go to hell. I don't, many people have that mindset. I just don't want to go to hell. I don't care about Jesus or anything else. Just save me, Lord. I'm one save, always save. Yeah, one save, always save for the believer. Paul says that I may know the power of this resurrection. Let me share something. The power of the resurrection is ultimately the power of God. That's what it is. Paul said that's contained, that that is the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. What we're doing now, proclaiming the gospel, this is the power of God unto salvation. But we can know the power of God by knowing Christ, by prayer and communing with him. Listen, we can know the power of God, Christ in all fullness, Christ in personal experience, Christ in the word of God, Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ in life, Christ in thought, Christ in deed, Christ in surrender, Christ in humility, Christ in illness, Christ in suffering, and yes, Christ in death. In all things. We can know the power of Christ if we are in Christ. But we'll never know. We'll never know the power of of, of Christ if we are in disobedience. If we are indifferent or apathetic to the things of God. If we're out of fellowship, if we're prayerlessness, outside the word of God in cold formality and ritual tradition, in neglect or without love, hunger and thirst for God, how can we know the power of Christ? You know what? That accounts for a lot of dissatisfaction in the church of Jesus Christ. Because there are many that are indifferent, apathetic, they rely on something that may have happened in the past, and then when life circumstances come and squeeze them, they go, where's God? Where's God? 
and we could come to know him in every single area of, of my life. You've heard me say this a thousand times. One of the greatest blessings I have ever witnessed in my entire life is watching a saint die in Christ. Unmoved by death. Bold in their final words. Confident in their inheritance of eternal life because of the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Listen, Hebrews 11.6 says this, what? Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Diligently seek Him. They make it its life's purpose, its life mission to seek God. They say there's nothing on the earth that's far superior, so I'm not going to miss a Sunday because I'm going to go to the beach. Instead, I want to be in the house of God. I want to hear what the man of God has to say. I want to be among the brothers and the sisters and come together and worship my God and praise my God. There's nothing more superior. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Not only does he want to know the power of resurrection, but he wants to know the fellowship of his suffering. That's an interesting word there, that word fellowship. I told you it's one of the words to circle there, one of the key words. It's the Greek word koinonia. That Greek word koinonia is used of the Holy Spirit that when he comes and he fellowships with us. Notice for Paul to know the power of God, he wanted to know Christ experientially as the object of his pursuit, but he's also willing. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Brothers and sisters, here's a bulletin for you. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer some form of persecution. That can come from friends, that can come from government, it can come from churches, it can come from anywhere. But you can be assured of this fact, when you are in Christ, you will suffer. God gives us the beautiful opportunity to enter in, in some fashion, into the sufferings of Christ. Paul says, I want it all. I want it all. In Ephesians 1, verses 17 through 19, the Apostle Paul says this, that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. And I ask that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened so you may know, there goes Gnoskos again, Right? that you may know the hope of his calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the, saints, in the saints, and the surpassing greatness of his power to us who believe. The surpassing power to us who believe. Now here's a, here's a tough question we got to ask ourselves. How is Paul's passion, his drive, his object of his affection, how is it different than merely going to church or walking through this life with such a mundane approach to our faith? This is where we must come as a church, as a people of God. 
Leonard Ravenhill, I love him. If you haven't read any of Leonard Ravenhill, I would encourage you to read so. Leonard Ravenhill made this statement, and I'll paraphrase it to a certain degree. He said, people say that Christians are so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. He said, but I say to you that Christians today are so earthly-minded, they're of no heavenly good. And you know what? He's right. Listen, church, my heart breaks over this issue. This ministry was born. The burden that God gave me for this ministry was that so many in the church were being robbed of the reality of God's Word and the reality of Christ. They play games in the church. Churches have morphed into political organizations. Pastors usurp authority. Leaders in the church motivated by pride and greed and not by service. And consequently, what has happened is you build big organizations that act, look, and feel no different than any other big corporation. We have followed the ways of the world. We have catered to the individual. And you know what's happening? We are reaping the whirlwind right now. That's what's happened. It's not easy to get up here and preach a service like this because the first place it has to begin is in my own heart. But many, many, many years ago, I got to a point where I said, I'm so sick and tired of this ritualistic nonsense of people hiding behind the term of salvation and hiding behind the term as a Christian, but not living like Christian, not living like the power of God is in their lives. There's got to be an alternative. There has to be an alternative. So what's the alternative? Go back to the Word of God. There's no mistake that the church, at least in this country, is growing less and less potent, not vibrant with the presence of God. Christians that appear to be indifferent, cold to the things of God, a true lack of of prayerlessness, a lack of meditation, a lack of contemplation in the Word of God. Let me share something with you. Wednesday night we had prayer meeting. Wednesday night. By a Zoom, by the way. Bunch of people in different locations. And we prayed. That is, I went to close the service. I felt the Spirit of God impress upon me. Wait upon the Lord. And so we transitioned the service. And we waited. How many of you were there? You tell me if this did, did or did not happen. As we waited upon the Lord, I told the people, I said, you're going to feel uncomfortable in the silence. Some of you are going to feel really uncomfortable that nothing is being said. But let's just turn our hearts toward the Lord. Let's just worship Him and praise Him. And I believe everybody on that call did that honestly and openly. And I'm going to share something with you. It may sound weird, but the Spirit of God showed up. 
And he showed up not in noise. He didn't show up with screaming and yelling and carrying on, hallelujah, You know how do you know the Spirit of God shows up? Because there's a deafening silence. You could have heard a pin drop. People started weeping. And all we did was bless God and praise God. And we stayed on longer and longer. When I got off the call, I said, oh man, I hope some people didn't get freaked out. But I said, Lord, what did we do? We just honored you. The Spirit of God put on my verse, Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. All too often we rush, we rush, and we want to tell Him He's God. But to know God experientially, there's a time where you come and you be still. And in that silence, the Spirit of God moves. The most important, the most essential thing needed in the church of Jesus Christ today are people who know their God and are known by their God. That is the most important thing. Because if we know our God, we're going to know the Word. If we know our God, we are going to be people of prayer. If we know our God, we're going to be people of the Word. If we know our God, we're going to be people that are executing deeds that bring glory to God. And if we know our God, we're going to be known by our God. And if we are known by our God, when we speak, the power of God will go before us. I love in Acts chapter 4, when they came together to pray, the last thing they asked the Lord was, Lord, grant that thy servants may speak thy word with all boldness. That's a Holy Ghost boldness, not an obnoxiousness. A Holy Ghost boldness. The pursuit of God is clearly the most critical issue facing the church today. For Christians to press in. Is he not worth it? Paul thought he was worth it. Paul said you can take everything else. And what did Paul ultimately give? In AD 64, before Nero, Paul was beheaded before the Roman Empire for his testimony for Jesus Christ. History tells of Paul marching out of the cell, being unescorted by Roman guards, being led to the chopping block. Not a tear, not a whimper. He kneeled down before the chopping block and he prayed a simple prayer and then unrestrained not being led with his hands behind his back put his head voluntarily on the chopping block and boom he was transported from the land of the dying to the land of the living what did Paul say he backed it up by his very words that I may know him and the power of of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering and all of them were completed in his life. Why? Because he clung not to the things of this world, but he was heavenly minded. Folks, I want to say this. There are no degrees of Christians. There isn't a Christian first first degree, Christian second degree, Christian black belt. There's none of that. Listen to me well. They're only believers and unbelievers. 
Daniel chapter 11.33 says this about the believers and the people who know their God will display strength and do mighty exploits. They'll do mighty deeds. That's the people who know their God. How do we know him? By pursuing him. And what is it or who is it that we pursue? We pursue Christ. We pursue Christ. I'm going to close with these words. From the great hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. The hymn hymn writer writes, What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend? For this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. O make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. Samuel Chadwick, the great preacher from the late 1800s to 1930, says this, Truth without enthusiasm, morality without emotion, ritual with soul, are things Christ unsparingly condemned. Destitute of fire, they are nothing more than a godless philosophy, an ethical system, and a superstition. May that never, never be said about us or our church. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank Thee. For You alone are worthy. And God, we ask Your forgiveness and we repent. For when the things of the world take precedence over us, when we're clinging too tightly, Lord, to our pleasures, our desires, our wants, our leisure, our entertainment, to our riches, to our talents, to our abilities. Father, it is my prayer that you would become all in all in us. That we may say like the Apostle Paul, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed unto his death. Have mercy upon us, O God. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say. And Lord, should there be any here today that maybe, Spirit of God, you have woken them to realize that they are outside of Christ. That they don't know that intimate fellowship with you, Lord. Father, bring them to the place of repentance that they would turn from their sin, they would turn from from trusting whatever else they trusted. They would run to Christ and entrust themselves to Him, falling and would by faith on the 
finished work of Christ upon the cross. For Lord, your word says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So Father, this we entrust to you in the blessed, most holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen and amen.